Hello and welcome to the Chip Away podcast. My name's Adam and I talk with passionate construction professionals and try to chip away at what it is to build, create and shape the landscape we live in. My guest for this episode is Jade Kake. Jade is an architectural designer, writer and housing advocate. Her design practice, Matakohe Architecture and Urbanism is focused on working with Māori organisations on their marae, papakainga and civic projects and in working with mana whenua groups to express their cultural values and narratives through the design of their physical environments. Jade is also the host of a brilliant podcast by the name of Indigenous Urbanism, which is a place-based storytelling podcast about the spaces we inhabit, the community drivers and the practitioners who are shaping those environments and decolonizing through design. It was a treat to get to speak with someone who's so invested in design and thinks deeply about how we react and inhabit our environment. It was a really mind-opening conversation that I took a lot away from, and I hope you can too. So, introducing Jade Kake. Kia ora Jade, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, I appreciate your time. I was wondering if you could fill us in on, on a little bit about your bio and, and what it is you do. Oh, kia ora. Um, Adam, thanks for the invitation. So uh, my name is Jade Kake and my whakapapa is to Ngākohi um, and my main hapu are uh, to Ngātiho based here in Whangarei. But I also have tātai um, down to Te here in Te Arawa, um, so Rotorua and Opotiki. But I live in Whangarei with my people of the north. Okay. <laughs> um, so my training is in architecture and uh, some urban planning and urban design, although I'm doing more of that work now. And um, I run an architecture and urban design studio called Matakohe, uh, based in Whangarei. Excellent. All right. So how, if you could take me back as far as you can kind of remember how you, how you got into it, how you got interested in, in architecture and and perhaps the particular field that you're in at the moment sure so um i grew up in an eco community in australia um so my mum's whanau is from here and my dad's dutch dutch um migrant and so my parents met and started uh, were involved with starting a community and so i think that was probably where i first got interested in architecture I think what really struck me is the way that we lived was quite different to the way maybe other people lived. Like if you go to someone's house after school and they live on a farm and maybe they live in a brick and tile house, whereas we lived in a like a timber house that my dad built and we had solar power and we had, you know, really luscious vegetable gardens, but we also lived on a community. So we had, um, you know, our own section, but we also had common areas, knew all our neighbours, um, and it had been designed with the intention of creating a sense of community uh, by people that were like-minded in their desire for rural regeneration and, you know, creating community and, and all of those kind of positive things. So that was a big influence. And then as I got a little bit older and I was coming home um, to Aotearoa on my mum's side, so I was born and raised there, but. Um, my grandfather used to bring me home and I spent time with his siblings and um, aunties and uncles and so on. And so came here and spent time at our marae and, you know, spent time on our whenua and was thinking, how come when we're not living on our land 
because that was where my our grandparents had lived, but we couldn't live there now. And, you know, there's all these pieces kind of floating around and trying to make sense of it. And I think a lot of that did inform my decision when I finished high school to go to architecture school um, and certainly motivated me as I went through my education and sought to kind of figure out how to specialise. So in my undergrad degree, I went to the University of Queensland in Brisbane and they've got a really great Aboriginal environments research centre that unfortunately at that time didn't really make its way into the undergraduate teaching. But there was the odd seminar and posters around, so I knew a little bit about what they were up to. And I was really, really interested in that area, even though it wasn't offered within my program. And I sort of had to think more carefully, why is this so interesting to me? And it was really because of my own, um, you know, the Indigenous community that I'm a part of that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, I probably just need to go home and contribute there rather than try to contribute to the housing and community development situation of another people, you know, from somewhere that I'm not from. Um, so that was that was part of it as well. And then when I was in my undergrad, maybe in my second year, I was visiting my auntie, my auntie Liza, uh, when she was in Auckland, although she's home now in Whangarei. And I was, you know, we're having our land meetings at, at the Marae and, you know, starting to formulate the plans for Papakainga for our whanau. Uh, and she suggested that uh, perhaps I should get in touch with our Fanonga Ro Hoskins from Whakapara um, because he's doing the kind of things that I was wanting to do um, for and with our whanau. And so that kind of started the Māori architecture journey for me because I didn't know any Māori architects or any Māori professionals or really any professionals. Mm. <laughs> um, so that was kind of a turning point. Uh, I just knew that I wanted to contribute positively to our community, to our whanau, but um, meeting somebody already doing it who was like me was the pathway to get there. Uh, and I was very fortunate that uh, I, well, he encouraged me to move home, but I also worked closely with him for a number of years, both for work, but also he was my teacher and my supervisor at uni when I did my master's at Unitech. So he's been a very important mentor to me. Uh, and really helped me to get on the path that I'm on now. That's that's fascinating. That's that's interesting about the the eco community that you grew up in. I'm sure that's kind of um, that's almost like a was that something that was quite pioneering at that time. Um, I mean, yeah, it really was. It really was. Um, so the community was founded in the early 80s and um, it was originally like a, a farm and a group of people bought it and wanted to create a community there. Mm-hmm. I think what was missing and I think this is true of a, a lot of the similar uh, communities that were established in New Zealand around that time is maybe that positive engagement with Tangata Whenua. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know in the Northern Rivers region where I grew up like we knew that it's Bunjalan country and there's a lot of Bunjalung, we had a lot of Bunjalung friends, or my dad especially, and in our family, but that didn't necessarily translate into thinking we need to involve the local mob in the planning of the community. And I would think differently now, but I don't know that people here were thinking in that way either at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way we think about this has really shifted. Um, and I don't think there was a huge awareness then of how, I don't even know how realistic it is in Australia because of the, you know, the Indigenous population is an extreme minority in many different, um, many different nations. And it's a, it's a different context. It's quite complex. 
but I think being growing up on Bundjalung country, actually there's still quite a reasonable population base and focus. So if it was possible, it, I think it would have been possible there. But again, I just don't think the thinking was there. And these are all retrospective reflections based on the work that I do now. Sure, yeah. I, I wouldn't mind unpacking that um, in those kind of um, ways. I mean, to follow on from that kind of sense of community that um, perhaps you had when you were growing up and, and now in retrospection thinking, well, we could have done it this way. Um, you you have a company, um, as you've mentioned, and um, on your kind of mission statement or on your website at least it says, um, and I'm just quoting your website here, we design spaces and places that embody the culture, history and aspirations of the community. I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit and, and what that means to you. Yeah, um, I don't know if those are the right words, but those are the words that I've used because um, I tried to think about what are the things that are really important to us, um, particularly as Tamatwhenua, and what are the elements that really need to come into the design process. And so in the work that we do, um, we spend a lot of time focusing on understanding the whenua and the, and the history of that place. So it's the sites of significance, it's the purako, those, those early narratives that are really significant and might be the kind of resources that are there or were there, you know, whether that's weaving resources, dyeing resources, food sources. Um, so it's encouraging a really deep understanding of place. And I think that's both in the pre-colonial sense as well as ongoing relationship as well as recognising um, the damage to environment or changes that have occurred, good and bad. And so I think that deep kind of listening and knowing is really essential because it's so core to our identities as Māori because our identities are really place-based and our whakapapa connections tie us to each other, but they also tie us to specific places and those, relation, those are relationships that need to be nurtured. And that, how you nurture that is like through like active kaitiakitanga. It's through the activities that you do in these spaces. And so if you're seeking to understand it in a much deeper way, you're really seeking to rebuild a relationship and understand the kind of relationship you want to have moving forward. So that's one element. And I think the culture and history are kind of tied up together because it's people, people in place in this kind of relationship. Um, but... It's sometimes helpful to pull them apart because there can be different aspects because culture is a living thing, whereas history is very much in the past. And so culture can shift and change and, you know, is a way to structure that relationship moving forward. Um, and then the last one is really around aspirations. So we spend a lot of time visioning and understanding what people collectively need and want. And I, that's, again speaking really towards looking into the future and sometimes it does mean looking at the history first because you might say we haven't lived on our land for a few generations but my dad said that they used to do this in this location mm -hmm. and that can be really useful to informing what we might do in the future and that's just a really basic example but um, I think it is always helpful to look back to look forward. Yeah absolutely uh, speaking of looking back I wonder if you could maybe speak on a little bit more on on the importance to Māori that their culture is involved and retained through architecture and design 
moving forward um, and kind of how you've already explained a little bit how you're going to do that or how you, you do it yourself. Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering if you could unpack that even a little bit more and what that means for Māori to be involved in the kind of architectural landscape of the country moving forward. Yeah, I think part of it is um, it's got to come back to the land. So remembering that the land that was, um, you know, under the control of Māori was once 100% and now it's around five. So it's a really, the land base has been whittled down and through successive legislation and um, policy, it's been made very difficult to occupy and develop that land. So a huge amount of whenua Māori is underutilised and that can mean all sorts of things and often it's coming from a, you know, agricultural, horticultural land use perspective. But if you're thinking just from the perspective of the landowners themselves or those who are responsible for that land, it's just ba the basic thing of being able to occupy and utilise it, which is um, often not not possible or, or very difficult. So I think at a, I think the foundational thing is actually to be able to utilise the land that exists um, and any land that is returned, whether it's through treaty settlements or other mechanisms. So the land is really central. And I think that uh, developing environments for whānau, hapū, Māori, first and foremost, it has to be the priority. So whether that's our marae, whether that's our papakainga. Um, I think some of the other stuff we do, which is really cool, but is secondary, is some of the cultural design integration work on civic projects public space, education, commercial spaces that are not necessarily kaupapa Māori spaces but are for the use of everyone or for a sector of society. Um, I think because the majority of whenua Māori um, is, you know, not doesn't constitute our urban spaces, although it does in some places like Rotorua, parts of Tamaki, but these are the epicentres of, of New Zealand society and they really where it's concentrated and reflects our identity. And so if hapu, whānau, iwi Māori don't have control over their land anymore, don't have their land anymore, then it actually makes a lot of sense for us to be involved in these, in these significant projects because mm. they're really an assertion of our identity, a recognition of where the land came from and actually the path to get to this point, which not everyone likes to talk about, but I think it's very important. And so I think it's also part of this journey of constitutional transformation or decolonization that I hope as a country we're all ready to go on a journey towards. Uh, and I think doing some of this stuff, it, it does help change attitudes and behaviours mm -hmm. and maybe starts to influence our collective thinking uh, through the environment that we're shaping, which is starting to not look so colonial because for the most part it, it looks very colonial reflects a certain value set and it's very clear which culture is the dominant culture and who holds the power and so if we can shift the power I, you know i think that kind of goes hand in hand with some of these more visible actions like creating public space and buildings that reflect maori identity yeah definitely um i'm wondering how if you have an opinion on how well um Māori are involved in those kind of bigger civic, more public um, projects as, a, as opposed to, you know, strictly kind of community building on Māori land. 
um, and whether you think that kind of involvement is um, needs to be increased and and even um, yeah throughout the country and whether whether we're doing it right on that stage on that public kind of uh, spaces stage. I think it's an evolving practice, and I think the best examples we've seen have been in Tamaki Makoto and Ōtautahi. Um, Tamaki mostly, I would say, one, because it's the biggest city, but also because of the treaty settlement context. So as the various iwi and Tamaki started to achieve settlement, um, as well as the process of amalgamating and becoming a super city, there are a few things at play, and one of them, which isn't the only factor, but one of them was the establishment of the Independent Māori Statutory Board. Um, and suddenly there was a lot more requirements on council, on this new council, to engage with mana whenua in development. And so there was, amongst this happening, um, the Te Aranga principles emerged, which came out of the Te Aranga strategy, which was in response to the disastrous Ministry for the Environment Urban Design Protocol. But the principles really came about after that and through collaboration with Māori designers and mana whenua on projects in Tamaki. And I wasn't involved with the development of the principles, but what I was involved with a few years later um, was the work to get those better integrated across Auckland Council policy and process, which has had a huge impact on council's own capital works projects, as well as, um, to some degree, the private sector. So I've seen a real explosion um, due to this process. And I would say... Um, not to get too hung up on tiaranga as principles because that, that can change. I, I like to think of tiaranga as a methodology, mm-hmm. and really, it's a methodology for how you translate the values, um, the aspirations, the pūraka, and the sites relevant to that mana whenua group into the physical environment through urban design, through architecture, through landscape architecture, through furniture, you know, and so on. Um, and so really it's just, a, it's just a method. It doesn't have to be those seven principles, um, although those were the ones that did emerge initially. Um, and so the other example is Ōtautahi, and uh, that really came about in the context of the rebuild. And mm. so um, basically it meant that Maituahurere um, had to be a partner in the rebuild, and it was written into earthquake legislation. And via Matapopori Trust, which is the mandated entity to do that work, they've had some amazing wins and done some really incredible work. And it's very visible. Mm. And I think it's made a huge difference. So I'd actually point to two pieces of legislation, plus a bunch of stuff around it. But the earthquake legislation, you know, in the recovery, as well as the um, legislation that formed the Auckland City, Auckland Super City, as being quite instrumental. Mm. Um, and then there was, you know, a bunch of stuff that happened afterwards. But I, I guess I wanted to point to the importance of legislation and, and policy because I do think they're really quite critical in the wider adoption of these approaches. That said, it's happening elsewhere. So with the things we learnt uh, in Tāmaki and Ōtautahi, as designers, I think, actually, and also manafino groups to a degree are doing it for themselves, um, now, I shouldn't speak to generally because I don't know what's happening in every region. So maybe I should speak to Whangarei, but I've heard it's happening lots of places. I've seen examples. I know in Whangarei, we've started um, introducing a similar methodology um, and we're starting to see really good results, but it's not mandated by council to any degree. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily doing it consistently on their projects. So it's a bit of a pilot and learn and then hopefully 
take that nice process or, you know, good outcome and turn it into um, really firm policy. And I think that has to extend to things like um, procurement and council zone capital works projects. And I think they're going to have to rethink a lot of what they're doing. And I guess the other ones would be like the likes of NZTA who are, who are really conversant in this space now and Ministry of Education, you know, the central government entities that work in this area. And those ones are a little easier because I think um, because they're nationwide, even though the individuals involved might not have been involved everywhere, there's enough institutional knowledge about the successfully working in other places. Mm. So our school projects, I think, work quite well because the people we're working with or the ministry itself understand this component that we're doing, this cultural design component. It's not a, a unknown, confusing element to them, whereas for our councils, I think it's still a very, very new thing and it takes a lot of cultural change and individual change to kind of engage positively in these processes plus plus the will to do so definitely i wonder um i wonder what you think or or even if you um have any knowledge on how well this could um kind of transfer into the private sector um and whether it's something that could kind of catch on um you know one thing that that i'm quite interested in is having some sort of identity within the country architecturally. Um, and I wonder if that could take off in the private sector and even um, if you have anything to say on housing as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know that's, um, that's probably a big battle or a very um, difficult thing to do. But, um, yeah, I just wonder if you have anything to say on that. Yeah, so I think... Um it's difficult to compel the private sector, but you can encourage with good examples and good processes. So I think for the example of Auckland Council, they've really had to walk the talk and do it successfully on their own projects, encourage that kind of approach through the urban design um, panel, which assesses major proposals. And so one part of that implementation strategy was getting Māori design expertise onto that urban design panel to assess proposals. Um, and now kind of everyone's really familiar with it. And so they understand the expectation is that you engage with te Aranga as a method and you work positively with mana whenua. I don't think that stops people doing it wrong. Mm. <laughs> so you still have examples of people just thinking they can kind of pick up te Aranga principles and have a go themselves. And I, I mean, that really just takes re positive or negative reinforcement um, to kind of learn through projects and learn through working with mana whenua. And, you know, I just, I think accepting that people on the project team might make some big missteps and hopefully learn and do better next time. And, you know, it's quite an adjustment, I guess is what I'm saying, um, to how a lot of these people might be used to working. Uh, and I think the other thing is like good examples. So I think the more you have good case studies, things like podcasts, things like videos, and Open Design Manual is quite good. There's a number of good good design examples that you can draw on there because Tamaki has a lot more to show than it did when we started doing content for the design manual, you know, eight years ago. There's, there's really quite a lot to show, which is great. Um, yeah, so, and I think pointing to successful examples uh, I really like the work of Ockham Residential um, who do really fantastic medium density housing in Tamaki. And they're also now increasingly um, having very good examples of how they've collaborated with Mana Whenua on, on their developments um, to achieve a really high design standard and I think a great deal of integrity from what I understand of what they're doing. 
Nice. That's really interesting. Yeah, that, that's something I'm really interested in. And I hope that kind of can take off, but also, of course, be done in the right way. Um, and I suppose from from what you've said, that, that could vary um, regionally. I know even just to grab some low-hanging fruit of, of public um, projects down here in Otatahi from where I'm at at the moment, I really enjoy walking into these buildings because you feel like it's a building that's meant to be where it is, um, as opposed to walking into some other public buildings where it's like I could be in any major city in the world right now. It's just another building, you know? So it's really interesting to see those design principles, although I'm not um, kind of knowledgeable on exactly the meanings and, and um, how they came about within that building. I think um, for a New Zealander um, to walk into that building, it means a little um, something something extra which is great i really enjoy it um there are some there's some really cool buildings being put up and like you say the rebuild has given christchurch such a good opportunity to take advantage of that and um and and push forward with that so yeah hopefully there's more to come from that um i wanted to ask you also um kind of going away from um the land and thinking more well staying with the land but more materials um maori have a really rich tradition of working with obviously local materials that reflect the landscape um in a really nice way um i'm wondering how we can continue to use those local materials um to create a landscape that kind of works for us here now and in 2020 and beyond um in a way that still reflects um maori culture and 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 all that yeah it's a um that's a big challenge so uh, a slight deviation but i went to fiji a couple of years ago and i was talking to um someone that i met and uh, she was saying in her village they have mostly been building in a western style for a while but it's so very expensive and so they have mm. to import materials and you know and so she's been kind of pushing to move back towards more traditional building methods because it uses the materials that are available it's lower cost and it's fit for the fit for that climate mm-hmm. and so i found that really inspiring but then i had to think how could we do that here and i think we've got a few things against us um you know one being that we get so much rain it's much colder than the islands and the way we live is different now um And, you know, with the kind of regulation that we have, I think it would be very difficult to go back to things like Farimiko. I really, I don't think that that would be an easy thing to do. But what I would be interested in is to see more research and development around how you incorporate natural timbers and fibres to create composite materials that could then be commercially produced Mm. um, and meet all the appropriate standards. So I think that's a better direction to go in. there is some good stuff being done around, you know, composite timbers. I'd love to see more incorporation of things like harakeke and ropo and, and niko and totara bark and so on. Mm. Um, I don't know what that looks like because I don't, I don't think that's in my, in my wheelhouse, but I think that it would be great if that, you know, kind of thing was being led by, say, Māori researchers working out of brands or working in partnership with Cyan or, you know, something like that. And so... Yeah, I would, I would love to see it happen. I would specify it on my jobs. It would be really great. Um, mm. I'd also love to see less kind of shipping our raw materials away to process them and then shipping them back <laughs> and being really expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So maybe COVID's an opportunity to reassess um, our building materials and, and the ways they're processed because it's really hard to get local materials here in the north, even if it's our trees. <laughs> yeah, right. Gosh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wonder, you know, speaking on design and kind of what we can do um, in the future, I'm wondering how you can take those kind of architectural designs of the history uh, within this country and the, the art and the patterns and the shapes and all of that and how you, what perhaps is your process or what the process is of reflecting something that was built a lot, very long time ago and trying to do that now in the future with different materials and how you can make obviously these kind of designs on a much larger kind of bigger scale on the the big public buildings that we're doing now and how what the mindset is of of incorporating those things from the past yeah um that's a tricky question but i think that we do really focus on that deep understanding of place and i don't think there's one simple way of interpreting that i think if you say if you asked a and oh, no i shouldn't say it like this because it makes it sound like i'm comparing myself which i'm not um but say if you ask one of our talking for kaido you know how they would interpret a certain for kaido or certain pudaka and you know that can there's a lot of factors i guess is what i'm trying to say and those factors need to be understood and then appropriately synthesized. So I think there can be a lot of different ways that that can manifest. And when we make, when we're designing, you know, modern buildings. So the way I think about it, and I guess maybe how our process slightly differs is, you know, we'll do all the, you know, history of the site. We'll do that research and work. We'll map the site's significance. Um, we'll spend time with Komatsu and we'll go over the land and that kind of thing. But then we'll also do just the conventional site analysis of the wind and the sun and the, you know, where the roads are and, you know, understanding understanding the topography and wider context analysis of the, you know, so we, and then we'll get the geotech and we'll get the site survey. Um, and then as we go through a co-design process, you know, we need to understand the regulatory constraints. We need to understand where the existing infrastructure is, work with that engineer. So we have to do all the conventional stuff mm-hmm. as well as some extra things like, understanding the Pudako, like doing marae-based wānanga to involve the community in a co-design process, like working with our artists to identify opportunities for expression. And so there's a lot of constraints and we really just add a couple more in the mix and then try to synthesise them well. And I really like that that part. Um, but I don't, I don't know that what we do can be that radically different to what the rest of the profession does. Mm-hmm. Because our profession is very highly uh, regulated, mm. and so it's not—it's not—it's quite rigid, really. And there's um, set ways of doing things, and the different consultants we need to work with, and the different stages of the design process, and the different consents that we need. Um, and there's definitely room for innovation and and room for um, you know being creative and expressive. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's already a lot of constraints that are fixed and then we add a few more into the mix and then hopefully synthesize them in a way that really uh, responds well to the history of that place and the desires and aspirations of that whanau, hapu, hapuri, whoever it might be. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it certainly sounds uh, that it's going to end up in a very well thought out um, project, that's for sure, in comparison to other buildings that are being put up. I, I kind of I appreciate that. I wonder if you could maybe speak to the audience about, um, is there, I mean, I'm, I've kind of asked you about design and how, how we do that in the, in the modern day. Is there anything that you would say is like an essential mouldy design and how, uh, you know, average Joe can walk into a building um, that has some uh, mouldy design incorporated into the, into the building and kind of interpret certain designs or um, kind of learn to understand um, without really knowing too much of that history that, that you go into as you're researching and kind of developing that project. Is there anything that, that stands out? Obviously, a lot of Kiwis have walked into a marae and we, we understand what those buildings kind of look like and somewhat represent. Um, but is there anything that you would say that's kind of essentially mouldy in design and the way that we do architecture today? Yeah, I don't think we could simmer it down to that because I think it's more about process than outcome. Mm. And not to say that the outcome is irrelevant, but to say the process is really is really the essential part. That so I had an interesting experience, and I like to tell the story because it's kind of illustrative. Mm. So um, I interviewed Lucy Tukua uh, from Watipawa at Pamua Station, and was asking her about the way that their cultural values had been integrated into the design. And she was stepping me through it and, and talking through each of the aspects. And then I pointed to this bus shelter that had a etched glass on it. And I was like, oh, what about this pattern? Tell me, you know, and she was sort of like, oh, I don't know. They just did that. We had nothing to do with that. And then she just kind of moved on and talked about the next thing. And so it was really telling because um, sometimes we get designers who don't want to work with us necessarily because they think, oh, I can draw a pattern. <laughs> Why do I need you here? <laughs> whereas a lot of what we do is we work with the hapu and we're kind of a design advocate for the hapu if we're not the main designers then we're advocating for our hapu in the design space and we're helping to translate that information um so it's who who does it as much as, and how as much as what if that sure. makes sense sure. but i think i can still answer your question um <laughs> So I couldn't simmer down to one thing, but some things that um, maybe don't require too much prior knowledge to understand, it might be things like um, orientation or views to maunga, um, connections to waterways, things like native species um, and habitats for um, native, native bird lives, you know, insects, lizards, that kind of thing. So a lot of the environmental aspects, I think, really resonate with people and are easy to understand. Um, I think some of the patterning that you might see in pavement or the facade of buildings, some of it is becoming known because there are patterns that are, are commonly used and are repeated that symbolise certain things. Um, although you often try to find a more uh, localised variant and work with your carvers and your weavers to uh, successfully interpret that. Um, so that may not be accessible to everyone, but if you've got some knowledge of Fakairo or Raranga, then those familiar, sorry, those patterns might be familiar to you when you see them, and you you know you might see Aramoana, and you're like, oh, pathways to the sea, ah, oh, great, that connects over to the Moana, that makes sense, like, mm. you know, oh look, Pateki, oh, was that something that was here before? So some of those might be readily comprehensible. Um, yeah, I. I'm not sure what else because uh, the way I like to think about it is that different layers of meaning will be available to you depending on your prior knowledge. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I always think that actually our Taitamariki, our young people, uh, perhaps should be the core focus of this kind of work. Um, from having grown up in such a colonized environment where they didn't see themselves at all, we didn't see ourselves at all, to then maybe walking down the streets of the town on the whenua that they're from, from their hapu, and to see their stories reflected, that's kind of, you know, it builds that sense of identity and, and pride uh, and sense of self being linked to that place as opposed mm. to where you're like, well, this is where our hapu is from, but we don't have this land anymore and that, you know, the Pākehā took it and then they ruined our waterways and now we're not even allowed on it and, you know, like, and our, now our fishing ground is ruined and, like, you know, there's, like, a lot of trauma. It's really traumatic walking through our cities and now all our streets are named after dead colonisers and, you know, mm. that all feels pretty bad. Mm. <laughs> and so it would feel a lot better um, to, if you could see yourself in that environment and your stories being re- respected. Because mm. sometimes cases are really significant to us, but then what's happened afterwards is just so sh- painful and shameful what they have done to, you know. Like, for instance, a lot of our places we're associated with burial, we don't have control over anymore. And so, you know, the places where they would hang the um, tūpāpaku, um, you know, we lost control of that. That was taken from us. Our cave, the burial caves where the bones would be interred, those were taken from us. And so it's quite traumatic. Uh, Mm. Our maunga don't belong to us anymore. One of my whanaunga bought back one of our maunga and now has a farm on it, Um, bought it back. (laughs) Like That's an amazing story. But, you know, for that pillar of your identity to be owned by somebody else who then... uh, damages it you know really badly and then doesn't allow you to have any connection with that place is actually really traumatic Mm. um and i guess i i know i've sort of labored that point because it's emotional for me but um you know so when we walk around our towns do we want to be reminded of those who took our land or do we want to be reminded of the positive relationships that we want to have with place in the future and the way that our culture is hopefully now being respected Mm -hmm. and and so Sorry, sorry. I just wanted to kind of ask, and and you think architecture has a role in in, in playing in yeah, kind of let's say thing. repairing or or um kind of uh I don't know moving forward or giving giving people that sense of self. I really do think so, and I know you know some often you know architecture and design things like the fluffy stuff compared to like social work or criminal justice or like really hardline heavy stuff um and it is i mean i've got a cousin who's a criminal justice lawyer and i can't imagine um the weight that he must carry doing that work and, and working with our young people and so i know i get to do the nice stuff where we have a wine with our hapu and you know hang out with our whanau and make models and like mm. dream about the future like i know that's the lovely stuff but i do think that aspirational stuff is really important if we want to create a better future mm-hmm. and i don't think design is the be all and end all but i do think spaces have a big influence on our behaviors and what kind of activities are possible the kind of relationships we can have with placing with each other and i do be- i do believe design has an important role to play in that and so um i started by saying you know i think the core audience is our taitamariki but i think it goes from our taitamariki all the way through to our international visitors and everyone in between mm-hmm. and so you'll have different layers of meaning and and knowledge that will be imparted and maybe through that relationship with place and the people of that place as that grows you'll have new knowledge and understandings 
And so these physical manifestations are really just touch points for that transfer of knowledge and, and developing that sense of place. So it's okay if you're going somewhere for the first time and none of these things are familiar to you, but they kind of feel good. <laughs> That's yeah. a fine place to start. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. And and I wonder, um, is this something that really has to be kind of achieved through legislation or is this something that there's other ways of of getting at this and kind of um, getting getting the wheels turning, if you will. Um, I mean, there's there's obviously the process that you're going through and in, in the way that you design buildings and spaces is not kind of available to someone, say, in the private sector who or even someone who wants to build their house in a way that respects these principles on the land that their house might be situated. So I'm just wondering at kind of how many angles is it, is it possibly we can come at this, um, whether that be, you know, a private citizen or someone who's who's making decisions um, at a government level? Yeah, um, I think it doesn't all have to be statutory. Like, I think there's a good role for non-statutory design guidelines and guidance. Mm-hmm. And so having a how-to that then is also supported by council is really helpful. So, for instance, if you have design guidance around applying Kauapapamari design principles, and then you can go through that process and then you might do an urban design assessment that responds to what the council said is a good process and then them actually respect that you've gone through that process and it support your resource consent application. That would be a good development. I think that would be a good way to do it. Uh, I do think a lot of it does come down to um, what's in our district plans and, and things like that, which is kind of dry, but it just kind of drives everything. And same with engineering standards. Like I think um, the way we do subdivisions and the way we have to do roads is all, it's actually quite limiting yeah. <laughs> and not ideal um, just from an urban design perspective full stop, but um, certainly from a Kaupapa Māori design perspective. Like it's very hard to challenge engineering standards. They actually have to be changed. Like it's quite hard as an individual applicant or, you know, as an individual person who's developing their property. Um, but I do think better design guidance would be really helpful if it was backed up by by our local authorities. Mm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I guess the the goal here in general is to create communities um, and spaces that everyone can feel either at home with or, or feel some sense of belonging or at least kind of more understanding of the place that we live. I feel in this modern day, whether perhaps you're Māori or Pākehā or wherever you're from um, in this country, there's, at least in my shoes, I'm speaking for myself, there's quite a disconnect to that kind of sense of belonging or land or even really the thought that you should give that thought um, in general, you know, the place where you are and what the history of it and how can I build a house or how, how can I contribute to that in the construction industry to kind of really honour that and, and feel like, yes, this building belongs here and it's kind of reflecting the landscape and it's using materials that we want to be using um, in this country. I know you're focused on Māori architecture and very much in, like you said earlier on the podcast, about building communities on Māori land and, and really thinking about how we do that correctly. But I just wonder if there's a way that we can all, as a country, get around that history of Māori architecture and style and design and the stages that go through planning those buildings and how we can do that 
for everyone in New Zealand. Um, I mean, is that a goal of what you're kind of trying to do as well? Um, I don't think that's my focus only because I can, I personally can only do so much and I'm really focused on and building up the capacity and capability of our own hapu. There's so much work to do just in that area alone. Mm. Do you get a lot of questions of that nature? And mm. I think it's a good one to be asking because people kind of hear these things and go, okay, so what does that mean for what I'm able to do and how can I contribute positively? And if they're coming from, you know, a different perspective or experience than me, you know, that might mean as New Zealand Pākehā, how can I contribute positively? And that's a great question to be asking. Mm. Um, I don't think it's my area of focus, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in the question. Mm. And so I think that there's a few things. Um, one, I think it's got to come down to relationships and it's relationships with mana whenua. Why that's a challenging thing is because the ability, the capacity and capability to engage is really varied. And so a lot of that has to do with settlement. A lot of our populations have been really fragmented because we were encouraged or forced off our land, we've become urbanised. Majority of our people don't live at home, plus all of this dysfunction associated with colonisation. Like it's hard to organise. And the settlement process kind of forces that in a really imperfect way that has lots of problems. But at least if you look to some of the post-settlement entities, you know, they might have paid staff and they might be able to, you know, they have their own artists and, and planners and people that can engage. Whereas we're all running around trying to deal with everything in our rohe and without, you know, having paid kaimahi and so on and our kaumatu are very busy. And, you know, so maybe private landowners might be lower on the list in that kind of, relationship forming and, and priorities um but you know i think there's an ability to form local relationships where where you live um and i think that can just take time like it's not necessarily a fast process but i guess i would emphasize that that it needs to occur via mana whenua. um i think that's that's how that's how this happens and just accepting that at this point we haven't really got any of our land back or much in the way of resources and that makes it hard to engage to the degree that we might wish to within our here. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why um, even if we really think it's a cool project, we might not be able to, um, you know, be a part of it. Uh, that said, one more point is that I have started to get approaches from private developers, you know, private landowners who really just want to do the right thing, exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're asking us to, you know, support that process and work alongside them. And I'm just about to start having conversations with our hopper about what does that mean for us and do we do these kind of projects? And, you know, it's different if we were a post-settlement entity with a formal process. We don't have that, but we're trying to develop good processes from, a, you know, from our own tikanga. And so, yeah, I don't know, I guess watch this space. I might have more to say. Uh, in the future but i'm just in the just starting to get those kind of requests and just starting to try to figure out how to navigate that and support that process sure yeah i guess i'm coming at it from from my own standpoint of you know if i wanted to build a house one day um i just wonder maybe you have an opinion on it but our relationship to to that process is should I really just build whatever I like um, in this country um, and I feel like 
there's a perhaps a lot of that going on and it goes on at such a fast rate that we're doing that all over the place and before you know it um we're not really reflecting um our history or, or new zealand or doing it consciously in a way that's really just kind of stepping back and thinking about that process as opposed to you know i've got this much money what's the flashiest kind of house i can build um yeah. so i put it back to the local council level again so mm. um you know i think with individual lots and individual houses where it's permitted activity you know but I think the more problematic, challenging, but also opportunity space is around things like new subdivisions or, you know, like large-scale regeneration projects, that kind of thing. And I think if council were more prescriptive around the need to engage positively with mana whenua, uh, as well as clear guidance on how to do so, and then holding developers to that standard because we have actually got great examples now, particularly in Ototahi and Tamaki, and the, mm. the examples are getting better, then I think that would have a huge impact because, I mean, I don't think the individual houses are a huge concern or focus area, but there's so much, like, larger-scale housing development going on at the moment. Um, a bit of work that myself and um, Jacqueline Paul did uh, maybe last year, maybe the year before, is we looked at um, synthesizing Kaupapa Māori design principles uh, across a range of scales to uh, neighbourhood regeneration projects. Mm. And so that was tiaranga, um, some co-housing papakainga principles, and then also um, the housing principles from Kitaho Kainga. So we, we configured it across a range of scales, and then we fit it in with an existing framework for urban design and, and also did it as a standalone item. And I... Hope that gets picked up, but really we're trying to think there's going to be a lot of work done on subdivisions and regeneration, especially with the work of crying order. Uh, how can we put some better parameters around this to support uh, that to be undertaken um, in a way that's really responsive to uh, mana whenua, sense of place and identity, but also cultural preferences of whānau Māori and just creating better communities in general. Yeah, I think there, there, there is an opportunity um, with the expansion of the population of the country and the building, at least I can speak to what we're doing down here. There's a lot more of that medium density housing building where it's kind of apartment style living, even in the central city. And there's a lot of shared spaces. And, you know, each stage of those projects perhaps have a kind of different overall design. And I feel like um, that's probably a great place where you could, perhaps be involved with that as a private person or at least invest into that as opposed to, you know, just wanting to build a house on a subdivision. Whereas as we kind of go towards the cities and I guess that's the way that things are moving. Um, yeah. There's a lot of opportunity perhaps there in the, in the medium density kind of apartment living. Mm, and I think it's through all of these um, individual projects as well as uh, the changes that might be happening at a, a council level that will start to see maybe a style. I think I think a process more than a style, but I think a process maybe creates a certain style that we then would come to associate with being a style of Aotearoa, mm -hmm. which at the moment we don't really have that. I think our architectural, you know, what is it, like identity is a little bit bereft and it sort of gets reduced to things like the group architects and the 
you know, shared or whatever. And I think, okay, that's okay. But I think we can, I think we're at a really exciting point where we can do a bit better than that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm quite excited to see what people like yourself can come up with. Um, one thing, uh, this is a bit of a curveball um, for you. So I'm interested in, um, in furniture design and, and you kind of touched on it a little bit um, earlier, but I don't know if that's something that obviously you're an architect, perhaps you're not an interior designer, but I wonder if that's something that um, maybe more so the, the average person can kind of have a part of that um, multi architecture and design in their own house or have more of a association or kind of get to see it up close and personal a lot easier. Um, through furniture design and whether anything is kind of happening in that world. I know I was in the um, Christchurch uh, Art Gallery over the weekend and they've got a, um, a show on at the moment where they had this amazing, um, I should have done more research on who, who did it, but um, a dresser basically um, out of native timber and it had all the carvings and it was very kind of reminiscent of, um, you know, shapes that you see in marae and stuff like that. And I thought, man, that's so cool. I wish... I wish there was more of that and on a kind of mass level where you could have that sort of design in your house and, you know, it feels like it belongs in a New Zealand house. I just wonder if you have anything to say on that. It's just something I'm interested in. Um, I wish I had more examples, but the first one that comes to mind is Karen Wilson. Uh, So he's from Ngati Awa. He's an absolutely beautiful um, person, but also a beautiful crafts person. He's Mm. a designer. He he does, um, you know, works collaborates with architects and does larger scale work but he also makes just absolutely beautiful furniture with native timbers that incorporates narrative and and focado and um i would just encourage everyone to look up karen wilson's work because it's beautiful and one of my ambitions is to uh one day own a piece of his furniture that i paid full price for um (laughs) or not or not but i prefer to you know i've got this thing where i like i really want to be able to support people whose work that I support by like personally paying full price Mm -hmm. so my big dream was to have a piece of furniture by Karen Wilson and I wanted to have a painting by Rokura Ture now I did not manage to pay for her painting because I wrote some I wrote some text for her for an exhibition and then she gave me one and it's the best thing that I own I love it so much so I was like okay I'm kind of halfway on my dream but now I'm like oh no I need to pursue my other dream which is a piece of furniture by Karen Wilson master craftsperson yeah (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, I'll I'll try and does uh, yeah I'll try and link him um in the show notes of the podcast and see if um yeah, I can send people that way. Yeah, yeah. There's I some, would. Sorry, sorry, you go. No, sorry. I was gonna say um I did mention before we started recording um that I did a podcast called Indigenous Urbanism mm-hmm. and I wasn't planning to randomly plug it, but one of the episodes is a really beautiful interview with Karen Wilson, and it was probably my favorite interview of the season. It was just a stunning conversation and it was really wonderful so i would just recommend listening to that and learning more about his process and um way of thinking and working it's really wonderful wow that sounds cool yeah i like that i'll definitely be listening to that yeah i mean um i think we'll kind of wrap it up anyway so if you if you want to plug your your company and your podcast as well then please go ahead okay it's it's a minute to um plug what you do okay (laughs) yeah yeah it is yeah I, um, I run a business called Matakohe Architecture and Urbanism and we're based in Whangarei and we are now five uh, wahine Māori which has really been so cool to grow and, and watch our, our team develop 
and most of us, our whakapapas, really around Whangarei, although we had a new kaimahi start today, and she has whakapapa over to Tororoa, so she's over on the other coast, which is, you know, different for us. Um, and we work really across two main areas, so we have the architectural side, and then we also do this cultural design integration work that we've spoken a lot about tonight. Um, yeah, so that's... So that's kind of us, and we mostly just work with our own whānau hapu on projects. We're starting to get asked to work for other, um, you know, hapu iwi, and that's a new experience. Uh, I've got this real thing where I think that actually it's about building capacity and capability within hapu, and mm-hmm. so it should be those with the closer whakapapa that are working on projects. So what I try to do is either find, either recommend someone who can do the job who has that more direct whakapapa if I get asked to do one that's outside of my area or if that's not possible or practical try and find skills development opportunities for either there's students or, or graduates or, or people that can be engaged in the process who can learn along the way because um you know I think it's really for those hapu to build up their own people and if I'm not from there I kind of think should I be doing this work does the right person exist? If they don't, how can I help them build their capacity and capability so I'm not needed here in future? That it's their own people who are able to do this work because I really think that's the right way of working. That said, Whakapapa is kind of a passport. So you go somewhere where you think you're not from and then, the, and then they're like, okay, but did you know six generations back, if you look on that side of your <laughs> whānau tree, that actually you are from us. <laughs> and you're like, thanks, thanks for that. Um, you know, and then you want to more of a deep dive on your own whakapapa because I had that recently. Oh. And the like, party words from the Kaumatua at the Hui were like, I encourage you to find your, um, you know, your whakapapa to hear. Mm. And I was like, I'll, I must do that before we meet again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a little rambling. It wasn't a very good pitch, but yeah, that's what we do. Um, yeah. And the other part is, um, yeah, I do have a podcast called Indigenous Urbanism, and it's really looking at the way our Indigenous communities and practitioners are shaping uh, their physical environments and decolonizing through design. And uh, I did that series of 24 EPS in 2018. Uh, Much to my surprise, it's been uh, picked up by a lot of universities for teaching. A lot of students listen to it. Um, It's become a really good resource. So I'm quite keen to find some more money to do another season. Um, so that there's so many new stories so there's it's you know there's a lot to tell and I think it's an exciting space and as you alluded to earlier like you know things are really changing we're actually seeing these things become physically manifest and it's really changing the shape of our our built environment here in Aotearoa so it's an exciting thing to uh, chronicle document yeah absolutely Um, I wonder if I could uh, ask one more question just from what you've said there Um, I, I come from a construction background so one thing that I quite like to do on the podcast is um, a, promote apprenticeships and really try and getting young people into this industry and so I wonder if you perhaps could speak on your own side and what you're doing and whether there are in fact opportunities for young people to move into jobs similar to what you're doing and, and whether that's something that can um, be kind of promoted and um, what's the word yeah how, how do we get more young people doing what you're doing like especially from where you say i find it quite interesting where you feel that you should be responsible for the work for in your own area in your own land and your own people um so obviously there's opportunities all around the country for people of those lineages to kind of step into perhaps a position that you're in now so i wonder if there's um anything you have to say on that yeah so um we 
So I only started the business two years ago. And last summer we got uh, we um, had an intern for, for the summer who was in her coming to end of her second year, starting her third year of um, architecture school. And that was a very cool experience because, um, you know, she, she knew her whanau and marae and all that, but um, she had not been home since her grandmother's tangi and she, you know, felt quite disconnected but wanted to be more connected. And so through spending the summer here with us, we were able to get her really right in there, connected back with her marae. You know, she went on a three-day wānanga, you know, she got to know her whānau whānui, you know, her wider whānau much better. And I think that probably helped to heal some rifts in her own family because a lot of the time the reason people are disconnected is because there's been a specific relationship breakdown or, you know, that and then that severs the connection and then, you know, people feel like they can't return home or it's not easy to do so. And, you know, so that's probably telling too much information about that story. But I guess I wanted to say, we started this program and this was our pilot year with the intention of one, supporting students uh, going through um, to work in the way that we do and to understand these Māori design kind of processes. But the other part was to help um, people or uri to reconnect with their own hapu, their own whānau, and, um, and also get connected with the local professional space uh, up north. Because I think you may think, or a lot of people think, even if they grew up here or even if they didn't, that there isn't many opportunities and that there isn't really anywhere to go for them up here. So like, oh, I'd love to go home, but there's no jobs. You know, how can I do this thing I've trained in? You know, there's even there's hardly any jobs full stop, let alone in architecture. And that's kind of true because I just had to make my own job. Um, but then through that process, I've been able to create employment for others and we're getting a critical mass. So we've had one student intern and she was so wonderful and, I think she'll keep coming back to the north now that she's had this experience and maybe she'll come back to us when she finishes studying. I hope so. Um, but we want to do this every year and I think that's a really good investment of our time and energy. Um, and so with each person, you're able to, you know, have them for long enough to strengthen strengthen those connections. Um, it's those relationships that are more important than anything. But I, I guess also seeing the way we work and understanding that that's a possible reality because if you've only kind of you know maybe you did a summer internship at one of the big firms or went to something there and you kind of think that is the only way of working and I guess I really want to show that these other pathways are possible um, you don't have to cut off a part of yourself you know if you're Māori to be able to have a job in this industry you shouldn't have to do that mm -hmm. absolutely all right wow that's great oh Gosh. Um, so yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good to hear that there are those opportunities. And yeah, I have to say, um, as we close up, I really, um, from afar, at least from, um, I appreciate what you're doing. And it's really refreshing to know that there's people in the country who are thinking about architecture in that way and really thinking about the land and the culture and the history. And um, I think that's the way forward. Um, and, and whatever direction that takes is, it's quite exciting. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on and sharing all of that with us. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, thanks for doing it. Cheers, Jade. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, thanks for listening, friends. If, like me, you enjoy conversations about the love of building and creating, then please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much to Jade for her time and educational conversation. 
I really enjoyed hearing about the care and effort that goes into the process of designing and creating the spaces Jade works with. It's so much fun to listen to someone who is so passionate about what they do and I feel that it's something beautiful about our industry where you can have a job as rewarding as Jade's where she's able to express herself and provide meaningful spaces in which to honour the past and create memories for the future. I would really encourage you to go check out her podcast. It has a way better production level than this whole thing. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and it's called Indigenous Urbanism. I would absolutely recommend the episode in particular with the legendary New Zealand craftsman Karen Wilson. That's C-A-R-I-N Wilson. If you enjoy the podcasts I've done with artists and you want to hear about someone who is deep in their craft, Karen's a furniture maker, joiner, artist, all of the above, craftsman through and through, then you're going to love that conversation Jade had with him. Uh, He's definitely someone I'd love to hunt down and have on this podcast, so go check that out. Also check out her company, Matakohe Architecture and Urbanism and go and follow Indigenous Urbanism on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again to you for your time and support. I really appreciate it. You can follow me on Instagram at chipawaycarpenter to keep up to date with what's happening on the podcast and until the next one, keep chipping away.